Matthew 24, 24, the words of Jesus. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now what that's saying there is there are going to be signs and wonders that aren't aimed at the world that's continually under the control of the evil one. They're already deceived. Signs and wonders aimed directly at the elect. And if it's possible, there's, there's a few translations that say, if it were possible, as if it's impossible for the elect to be deceived. That's not what it says. It says, if there's a kink in your armor, if there's some way for Satan to get through, some, some blindness, some blockage, amen, the elect is going to be deceived. Amen. That's going to be the power of these signs and wonders, these false prophets, these false Christs. Amen. Amen. It's aimed directly at us. Amen. Matthew 24, Jesus does follow that scripture up, by the way, by saying, see, I have told you beforehand. That tells me two things. One, it underscores, <laughs> pay attention, I'm, t I'm saying this beforehand, but it's also, it's saying, I'm sounding an alarm to you. You know, alarm is, is, is not a, something to produce fear. It's not a something terrifying. Alarm comes from the French word, two arms. Amen. It says, pay attention. I'm telling you beforehand, and I'm going to show you what you need to watch for. Now, pay attention. Amen. Matthew 24, 37. But as in the days of Noah, so also will the son, coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now you put these two things together because obviously that scripture, it's talking about the end of time, but it talks about it in terms that are so every day, you know, marrying, giving, eating, drinking, all these sort of things. Amen. Which means somehow or another this deception, these powerful signs and wonders are somehow or another going to be so interwoven to everyday activities that you're not even going to know what's happening. In other words, it's not going to be, I'll dispense with something right off the bat. The deception is not going to be the Jews rebuilding a third temple out of stone and some charismatic, good-looking guy with dark glasses appearing on the scene and sitting in the temple and saying, I'm God. Is there anybody in this room that would be deceived by that? Of course not. Amen. But it says there's going to come something that if we're not watching, it can deceive us. Amen? Amen. And it's going to be very much a part of our everyday life. Amen. Amen. 
Matthew 24 and 6 tells one of two prerequisites for the end coming. Jesus talks here about wars and rumors of wars and, and all these sort of things happening. But then he says, but the end is not yet. That's not, that's not the signs. But then he goes on and he says, but the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness, then the end will come. Something about the light of the word of God has to spread all over the world as a witness. Doesn't mean the world's gonna be converted, but a witness has to go forth before the end can come. The second thing that is said is a prerequisite for the end is in 2 Thessalonians, where Paul talks about, you know, now concerning uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, an hour being gathered together unto him, don't be soon shaken in mind, either by letter or whatever. He says, for that day will not come, the end, when Jesus comes. That isn't going to come until first, he says, there will be a falling away. That's the Greek word apostasy. And the difference between apostasy and, and ignorance is apostasy is somehow or another you've encountered light and you reject it. It's rebellion against the light. Amen. And he says the end cannot come until there is this falling away, this apostasy, and the man of sin is revealed Amen. The son of perdition. Amen. Those two things are connected. <laughs> the falling away can't take place until the witnesses come. <laughs> and it's going to be a global judgment. And so the word, the light of God in some sort of way has to stretch all over the world. Amen. And in some sort of way, there's going to be a movement that having received some light, it's rejected, and that will reveal the man of sin. Everybody with me so far? Amen, amen, amen. First Timothy four and one. I'm gonna be reading a number of scriptures. I'm going to be quoting a lot of people. Don't worry about it. Do not try to keep track of the scriptures. You can't, if, I mean, if you, they stick with you, that's great. Uh, and don't worry about names and dates and things like that. Just follow the trajectory of where we're going. Amen? Because all of this is, is, is in literature back there. Uh, there's a whole uh, series called Unplugging from the Matrix, amen. And there's other books back there that'll fill all this in, amen. But the most important thing is for us to pay attention to the trajectory here that is being unfolded, amen, amen, amen. First Timothy four and one, the spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith Identical word, just the verb form of the word apostasy that we just read about. Same word though. Some will depart from the faith 
and following deceiving spirits, these people who apostatize, follow then deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings, demonic teachings, come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. That's an apostate. Amen. The real doctrines of demons don't just appear. They come through apostates. That's what it's saying there. You understand? Amen. Amen. Somehow or another, apostasy releases a new level of deception and a new level of, of demonic teaching. Amen. That mere ignorance doesn't do. Amen. Hebrews 3 and 12. Beware, brethren. Remember it said, deceive the elect if possible. We'll read this scripture. Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you, the elect, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from, that's the word apostasy, the living God. To pull away from the living God, amen, is possible, amen, amen. But exhort one another daily, that's the antidote to it, amen. Be in a context where you can be exhorted daily, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Amen. Luke 8 and 3. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these, having no root, who believe for a while, and in time of trial, they fall away. Same word, apostasy. Amen. Amen. Notice that they fall away because they have no depth. And that's, that's what we have hoped this symposium is doing for all of us. It's giving us a depth of understanding, amen, to where we won't fall away. Amen? Amen. 1 John 2 makes it absolutely explicit. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Amen. Apostasy. Amen. Amen. Romans 1 and 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness is revealed, as we've heard in, in these symposiums, in an ongoing, unfolding way. We're moving forward into more and more light. Faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold back. It's the opposite of from faith to faith. 
something's pulling back, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. They've had light. Amen. But they pull back. Amen. It's, there's a parallel scripture that even quotes that same verse in Hebrews 10 and 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. That means utter destruction. Pulling back, apostasy, brings utter judgment. It's not backsliding. It's, it's rejecting the light. It's rejecting the truth. Amen. Amen. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe, who keep moving from faith to faith to the saving of the soul. Amen. Because that is the opposite. He said, pulling back, the opposite of that must be moving forward. Amen. Amen. So if God is shining more light through this symposium to our lives, let's receive it. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Two personages, this perdition, two personages in the Bible are identified as the son of perdition. In, in, in uh, Jesus, in, in uh, I believe John 17, calls Judas the son of perdition. Amen. He was an apostate. Amen. Amen. The other place is in 2 Thessalonians when it talks about the falling away and the revealing of the man of sin, the son of perdition. This man of sin is somehow or another going to be manifested through apostasy. Not through ignorance, through apostasy. Through apostasy comes doctrines of demons, amen. And we're gonna see some tangible examples of it, amen. Amen. It's important to note that when the Bible talks about um, like the man of sin, <laughs> um, it isn't necessarily or even probably, and I'm going to go so far as to say it is not <laughs> speaking about a specific single individual. It's talking about a corporate man. Amen. Amen. It may include an individual that really personifies it. Amen. But its message, amen, is people who are part of a corporate system. Amen. The man of sin. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's uh, vision, uh, dream that Daniel had to interpret and had the head of gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the iron and the clay? It was a colossal image of a single person. Amen. And its head, Daniel said, was the king of Babylon, which incidentally, Isaiah 14 says, the king of Babylon is Satan. You read uh, Isaiah 14. It's talking about the king of Babylon, then all of a sudden, <laughs> it's talking about Lucifer <laughs> and, and the morning star. And how, you know, somehow or another, this colossal image, its head is the devil. Amen. The counterpart, it's the counterpart of the body of Christ whose head is Jesus. 
the head of the, of the man of sin is antichrist in the place of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Ephesians 4 talks about we're all being built up by the fivefold ministry. Amen. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. And we know that's a corporate man. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 2 and 14 says that God brings the Gentiles and the Jews together so as to create in himself one new man. You see how it speaks corporately of these men? Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12 says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And I will just add, and so also is Antichrist. Amen? Amen. Now just as the, the perfect mature man that is the body of Christ is that body that grows to maturity because of the implanted seed of the Word of God. Amen. Well, the man of sin comes to maturity. It is a mature expression of the seed that was planted in the garden. You, by your own knowledge of good and evil, shall be as God. Amen. The man of sin that opposes and exalts himself above everything called God is the, when, it, when, it says, when Paul says that, he's talking about the mature expression of the original seed, the lie that came from the devil. Amen? Amen. Let's parallel two verses. Amen. Second Thessalonians, where it talks about the man of sin, says there's got to be a falling away like we read until there's got to be a falling away first, then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Amen. Now, two things to, to remember here and understand here is, first of all, what we just said, it's talking about a corporate temple. Amen. 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 The second thing is the temple that he sits in here. There's two words for temple in the New Testament, Greek. One is hieron. It always refers to the physical temple, the temple of Herod, you know. Amen. The other word is the word naos. That's the word, it can refer to a physical temple, but it's the word that is always used in a figurative sense. When Jesus says, tear down this temple, he didn't say hieron, he said naos. When Paul says, you are the temple of the living God, amen, amen, it's naos. And here, the word is naos. What he's talking about is a spirit is going to set himself up. Humankind was created to be the temple of God. Amen. 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 
We are the temple of God. Amen. But when a spirit comes in and starts to take hold that is in fact antichrist, amen, he then sets himself up in the temple deceiving man in the fullest possible way, your God, amen. That's what Paul's talking about here. Is everybody okay with that? Amen, amen. He's not talking about some third temple and you know, the Jews are gonna reinstate animal sacrifice and all this kind of stuff, amen, amen. The coming of the lawless one, which is another word for the man of sin, is in according to the energizing of Satan. This, this man of sin is motivated and moved by the devil himself, the head. Amen. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. We're going to keep seeing. There, there's going to be some, some uh, very powerful signs that come that he said originally there in, in Matthew 24 could deceive even the elect. Amen. Amen. But this happens with all unrighteous deception. Amen. Because they didn't receive a love for the truth. They didn't hold on to it. Amen. Amen. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It's a definite article. That's the lie. They're going to believe your God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I want to parallel those scriptures in 2 Thessalonians to Revelations 13. Amen. This is where he sees two beasts. There's a beast that comes up out of the sea. He's got seven heads, ten horns. A lot of it parallels. Much of the book of Revelation is actually quotes from the Old Testament. And, and this parallels a lot that's in the book of Daniel. But he sees this. And on his heads of this seven-headed beast, on his heads a blasphemous name. And what is blasphemy? The Jews told, told Jesus, amen. You know, when he said, why are you stoning me to death? He said, we're not stoning you because of your work. We're stoning you because of blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Amen. The name written on this beast's heads is the blasphemous name Man is God. I'm, I'm saying figuratively speaking, you know. He, whatever it is, it, it exudes the pride of, of a usurped godhood. Amen? Amen. Amen. The dragon gave him his power and great authority, but I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. This is obviously a spiritual beast. I don't think there's going to be a literal seven-headed something appear. And if one of those wounds was healed, it says in verse 14 here that it was wounded by the sword. Amen. If it's a spiritual being, I don't think he was wounded by a physical sword. Amen. What wounds one of these heads is the sword of the Word of God. Amen. Something came because this is the beast of the state, is what this is. And, and, and at the time of the Roman Empire and such, Jesus came and said through his word, 
there is a division that before was always total and now render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God which is God. All of a sudden, there's an entire realm within which people could live apart from the state. Amen. The state's pretensions, as we saw in the video at the beginning, to be God, <laughs> to be everything there was, it took a wound, you know? Amen. 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 And, uh, and it goes on, who can make war with him? It's the, it's the beast of, that has violence behind it. It's the state. Amen. Amen. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Amen. But then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And elsewhere in the Revelations like 19 and I think one other place, this second beast is explicitly stated to be the false prophet. Amen. 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 This second, this another beast, which is the false prophet coming up out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Uh, had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is important. Amen. He has the appearance of a lamb. He's just sweet and harmless and, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, probably really cares about us. Amen. But out of his words come the mouth, the words, uh, out of his mouth come the words of the dragon. Amen. 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 He causes, this false prophet causes, all, causes the earth and all who dwell on it to worship the first beast. Amen. Whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwells on the earth by those signs, telling them who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Amen. Now, I, I want to I, I show you a symbiotic relationship, a, a a cooperative relationship between this false prophet and the beast whose wound is healed. Amen. And I might as well tell you where I'm going. Some of you already know. Amen. The false prophet is the informing institutions of this world. Academia, its scientists, its scholars, its education, it's media outlets, amen. Just as the word of God comes through the church to form in us the image of Jesus Christ, so the informing agencies of this world, amen. They may look like a lamb. I mean, the scholar is just so sweet and wonderful and harmless looking, amen, amen. But out of their mouths, comes words that forms the very image of the man of sin. Amen. Is everybody with me? Amen. That was a spoiler alert. Amen. I've told you where I'm going now, but I want you to know, and, and then I'm going to show you how it's happened. Amen. 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 He causes all, both small and great and rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand 
are on their foreheads. And here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast. A, a lot of translations will say, for it is the number of a man or the number of a person. Amen. And his number is 666. There, there is no indefinite article there before man. It's basically, it's just the number of man. Man's number, which is the way the NIV actually translates. And it's its number. It's not the number of a individual person. A lot of people in history tried to figure out, uh, I think they call it Nero Revivitus. You know, Nero comes back to life and his name, if you do numerology and everything, winds up adding up to 666. And listen, there may be something to some of that. But I think in all likelihood, what it's talking about is six is the number of man. He was created on the sixth day. Six days he shall labor. Amen. 666 could mean the culmination of all of man's works altogether. That's just a possibility, okay? It makes a little more sense to me than uh, some, you know, trying to figure out uh, the letters and, and, and numerology. But whatever it is, it's man's number. Amen. Amen. Is everybody with me so far? It's not, not too much? Okay. Because I want to shift gears here a little bit. I'm just trying to get something across to you. It's everyday life, folks. <laughs> Amen. It's not going to be a magic show that suddenly appears somewhere. Amen. Amen. The deception, the signs and wonders Amen. They come from this false prophet. Amen. And it's, it's the false prophet that is in the informing institutions and agencies of this world that are already here. Amen. Amen. I want to go back in history just a little bit. First, I want to go back to Pergamum. The New Testament in Revelation, the second chapter, peculiarly identifies Pergamum as the place where Satan lives. Remember that phrase, some of y'all, you know, the place of Satan's throne. Now, why does it all of a sudden identify Pergamum? I thought Satan ruled the whole world. Why, why did Jesus state that in that letter to the, to, to the Pergamum? Why did he identify it specifically in that way? Well, let's read about what George Paul Gusdorf of the University of Strasbourg, who studied Pergamum a whole lot, listen to how he describes Pergamum. Amen. After the fall of Alexandria, now we're talking way back, about 100, 150 BC, all the way up to about 100 AD, the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. At this time, Alexander the Great had fallen and Athens had declined. And at that time, Gusdorf says, the center of gravity of culture shifted to Pergamum and its African counterpart, Alexandria. Amen. What's unique about it? There were three things. First, Pergamum was the first place where the Romans 
set up a bureaucratic apparatus to run its colonies. <laughs> Amen. A whole bureaucracy of taxation started. You read in the Bible about publicans. Publicans were people who got a cut of the take. And that's the way the Rome set everything up. They would let people in these various areas collect the taxes and then they would get to take, you know, whatever, 25%, and then they had to send the rest to Rome. Amen. Pergamum was where that got set up. Amen. The whole apparatus got set up at that time. Amen. That's the least important of its uniqueness. The second distinguishing characteristic, according to Gusdorf, it became the chief center of the imperial cult under the early empire. This is where people worshiped the beast. Amen. But why did it get set up there? Well, the third distinguishing characteristic, according to Gusdorf, is that the ruling Attilids had uniquely, this is a quote, had uniquely made science and literature an attribute of the power and glory of the state. For the first time, knowledge took the form of a public state institution subsidized by the prince. Scholars and scientists were considered to be government officials and led a privileged life. Amen. Amen. Does that impact you at all? That just blows my mind that, that, that this is the first place where he goes on to say that from Pergamum, the prototype of Cambridge and Oxford, all the modern universities started right here. Amen. 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 He says, in this city, these are all quotes, a cultural utopia was actually built of stones, books, and men. The birth of humanistic scholarship as systematic study, that's a, that's a system of education, and because it's humanistic, it means man is the center instead of God. The systematic study of humanistic scholarship, humanistic scholarship as systematic study was developed at Pergamum. This humanistic scholarship was inspiring an attitude that makes human consciousness the alpha and omega of all thinking. Man is the measure of all things. Amen where Satan's throne is, amen. Where Satan can really ensconce himself and fully rule. He needs this system of, of education and, and he needs this working between the false prophet and the beast, amen, amen, amen. The individual becomes the center of all values. In the libraries of Alexandria and Pergamum, according to Gusdorf, culture became what it has since remained. Amen. Amen. So whatever the end time delusion is, somehow or another it's going to parallel this. Amen. 
The, the actual representative deity of Pergamum at that time was Asclepius Soter, which means Asclepius the, so, the, the Savior. And he was supposed to be the son of Apollo, who was the Greek god of rational thought. Amen. Walter Otto says that he represented the truly Greek spirit, which was destined to produce not only the arts, but eventually even science. Amen. You know, science comes from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. But it's a different type of knowledge. It's a knowledge apart from God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Is this too much for everybody? Sure. When this was happening, he's describing the time of Pergamum from about 150 BC to 100 AD. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Right at the time the book of Revelation was written. Amen. 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 Now I want to jump 1,700 years. It's the only place that says where Satan's throne is. Yes. This place that is Amen. It's already here, folks, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and it can deceive even the elect because it all seems so benign. Amen. It all seems so harmless. But out of it comes the words of the dragon. Amen. Let's jump 1,700 years. Amen. Because a sword did come and, and there was a wounded head. <laughs> And, and for quite some time, as out of it as it was often, amen, nonetheless, there was this sense for many, many years that there was a God in heaven, <laughs> you know? And, and, and the, the church in all its vitiated form, nonetheless, there was this sense. I, I remember it's my favorite church marquee sign. You know how churches put these clever sayings out front, you know, like what's missing from church? You know, you are, you know, you, you can tell they, they, they don't, they don't pay much for the, whoever puts their sign, but, but there, there was this little church down in Alvarado, Texas. I mean, this little church, uh, full gospel church, and it had this sign I was driving through, almost had a wreck when I saw it. It, it said, the two undeniable axioms of life. Number one, there is one God. Number two, you aren't him. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but there's a false prophet that wants to deceive us into denying that second. Amen. Amen. In 1700 years later, there comes this movement called the Enlightenment. Amen. Amen. And remember, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Amen. Amen. Peter Gay from Yale University, probably the world's foremost defender 
and explainer of the Enlightenment calls the Enlightenment the rebirth of paganism. He defines, this is now a quote, the Enlightenment as a mixture of classicism, and what that means is classical civilization was Greek and Roman uh, civilization. So somehow or another the Enlightenment is bringing back the ancient Greek and Roman civilization. This is the combination that it is. It's a combination of classicism, impiety, you know, don't tell me about God, and science. And the philosophers, the leaders of it, the thinkers, the philosophers that led it all, were modern pagans. What made the pagans modern and gave them hope for the future was that they could use science to, this is Peter Gay, to establish the superiority of their own second age of criticism. The first was the Roman uh, Greek uh, time. Amen. Science, they now had science on their side. Amen. And this is a time of apostasy. All of this erupts out of Christendom, where the Word of God was everywhere. Bibles were going there. The Reformation had taken place. Amen. Amen. So to, it got me when I read that, that they thought science made them superior to the first uh, Greco-Roman civilization. And it made me think of what we talk about, the glory of the former house and the glory of the latter house, you know. In a certain way, what they're getting enthralled with is the glory of their latter house. Amen. According to Diderot, one of the most important, don't worry about names, okay? Amen. According to Diderot, one of the most important spokesmen for the French Enlightenment, quote, man is the single place from which we must begin and to which we must refer everything. It is the presence of man which makes the existence of beings meaningful. Now he's obviously saying this in the face of 1700 years of the word of God. Amen. Amen. And all of a sudden, man is the most important thing. Man becomes the center. He eclipses all transcendence. He eclipses everything called God or that is worshiped. Amen. See the connection to amen. A monumental shift occurred in the Enlightenment. Science gained a universal scope. All of a sudden, they believed everything could be, believe, uh, be explained by science, even life itself. That's when all of these disciplines came up, like sociology, anthropology, psychology, <laughs> the science of man. All of a sudden, man could be fully explained through man's own analytical reasoning. Amen. 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 And because of this, education itself had to be redefined. Amen. Everything's being turned. For many, many years, education was supposed to be leading people to God through families, but now they came up with a new idea. 
The Enlightenment reached its crescendo with what's called the French Revolution. Happened around, started around 1789 and really kicked into gear around 1792. Amen. But don't dismiss this, oh, we're talking about the French Revolution. Because I'm telling you, what was birthed in the French Revolution in that one country is now being birthed all over the world. Amen. And there's even direct connections with the people who are birthing this revolution actually hearken back and studied uh, the, the, the leaders of the French Revolution. Amen. What happened in, during this revolution, the French nation state became explicitly referred to as our Lord mankind. Amen. Robespierre, Maximilien Robespierre, who was a devoted follower of a guy named Rousseau, who we'll talk about in just a second. Evan, Brother Evan referred to him. Amen. Amen. He declared to the French revolutionary government in this enlightenment atmosphere, in this revolution that, that's now saying man is the center of everything, Robespierre says, O oh, sublime people, receive the sacrifice of my entire being. Happy is he who is born in your midst. Happier still he who is able to die for your happiness. Amen. To die for the state now became a sacred sacrifice. It was the substitute for the sacrifice we're called to for the body of Christ. Amen. To the French National Convention, and I think Brother Evan quoted part of this, John Paul Robot declared that in order to fulfill the French nation's messianic role, our Lord mankind, the French would need to be redefined, transformed, quote, into a new people through a, quote, indoctrination that would transmit constantly and immediately to all the French at once the same uniform ideas. You see, to pull this fantasy off that they had in their mind, they needed to come up with a new way to indoctrinate people. Amen. Amen. Something's getting ready to be birthed. Amen. It's the rebirth of Pergamum. Amen. Amen. In order to achieve his objectives, Rabat stressed the need to, quote, bewitch the people, if necessary, by making this indoctrination likable, seductive, and entrancing. Let's make it look like a lamb. Amen? Amen. Amen. It can deceive us. Amen. It's important that we, we see. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Princeton's David Bell explains that this massive indoctrination would come, quote, through education, the theater, the press, and the festivals. I, we don't have any of that in modern America, I know. And, and so we don't have to worry about the way they did it here, you know, or in Europe or any place else. Amen. Did you see the Beijing uh, Olympics? The 
festival, the spectacle. It happens, it's everywhere. Amen. And it's a means of indoctrination. Amen. He said this is the way it would come. The goal, this is still Bell, was that the people, given these new attitudes, opinions, and habits, would act as a single body. Amen. You making the connections? Amen. A body that would be a new secular kingdom imagined on the model of the corpus mysticum of the church headed by Jesus. Amen. The body of Christ, the man of sin. Amen. And they've got a means to bring it to pass. It's a likable, seductive, entrancing, uh, entrancing, Entrancing, that's right. It doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> Sorry. Entrancing indoctrination. Amen? Amen. Amen. One of the articles printed at that time by the, by, by, in the encyclopedia, that was, that's where encyclopedias came from. It meant they thought they were going to have the totality of knowledge. They, they thought they were going to know everything and they were going to put it in a set of books. And so they invented this thing called the encyclopedia. This is where it started. I think it got up to, what, 19 volumes, and Diderot died, and, you know. But, but uh, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the articles in it declared that society civile, civil society, it, that was Texan-speaking French. <laughs> okay. Is, so to speak, a divinity on earth. The Legislative Assembly of the French Revolution declared the image of the Patrie, the fatherland, is the sole divinity it is permissible to worship. Going to Rousseau, he was a French-Swiss philosopher. His writings, historians and, and such like that, say that his writings, his quotes, are probably the most representative of the educational orientation of Enlightenment philosophers. Rousseau's mother was the daughter of a Calvinist minister. And he himself, when he was 10, lived for two years with a Calvinist minister. And it says he was always moved by religious services. And he himself, they say, dreamed of becoming a Protestant minister. Amen. But something happened. He got really turned off to predestination. And, and uh, he had to leave Geneva. I forget the exact reason why. But he decided he'd try becoming a Catholic. And he went someplace and a priest uh, met him up with a religious mentor. It was this 29-year-old uh, woman uh, that was a mathematician and uh, scientists and everything, and she was going to give him the catechism, and they wound up having a an immoral affair, and and uh, he viewed her as having uh, opened up uh, the world of science to him. Amen. In this immoral relationship, amen. So by twenty, he had become apostate. He wrote, he wrote a book at the end of his life. I think it's called Confessions, just like Augustine. He wrote, a book, he wrote in that book that on a walk, he received the revelation, this just came as a revelation to him, that man is essentially good 
and only needs the right education. I did not know when I did all this that we were going to have all these education seminars today. Amen. But this is where the revelation came. Amen. That all we need is education. There's no need for regeneration. Amen. Amen. He came to strongly reject original sin and divine revelation. He was an apostate. Education then becomes a molding of an essentially good person who has no need of regeneration. A child only has to be informed rather than having to conform to any transcendent moral standard. Will Durant, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, says that Rousseau had more effect on posterity, <laughs> everything that's come after him, than any other writer or thinker that the 18th century produced, in which that century, Durant says, thinkers had more influence than any other time in history. And he was the, the most important. Excuse me? What's that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I don't know. Oh, yes. Oh, got it. <laughs> sorry for my dullness. Okay. Okay, you are. <laughs> Amen. Rousseau's educational theories, quote, have been the seed of all modern educational movements. Well, he loved the children. That's what the lamb, you know, he wants to help. He, he sees the need. Amen. And so he wanted to set up this system. Amen. To educate people, to teach people. Now he himself gained a mistress named Therese Levasseur, through whom she bore five children. He paraded her around. She went everywhere he went. He went all over the place to Prussia, back to Switzerland and everything. And he would say that she was a nurse. I guess he was pretending to be sick. I do not know. But that's the, that was the cover. But she wound up having five of his children. And he writes about all this he, in his confession. He, this is his own explanation. Each time she bore a child, he refused to accept the child and insisted that she turn each of those five children right after they were born over to this orphanage in which conditions were pretty bad back then. In this orphanage, I forget the exact statistics, but I think it's something like 50% of the children never lived to the age of one and almost all were dead by the age of two. This man who loved the people, amen, sent all five of his children, amen, to what was really a certain death. That is a man whose conscience is seared with a hot iron. That is a man through whom doctrines of demons can come, amen. Amen. Rousseau wrote, those who control a people's opinions control its actions. 
And such control is established by treating citizens from infancy as children of the state. They were to be trained to consider themselves only in their relationship to the body of the state. For being nothing except by the state, they will be nothing except for it. It will have all they have and will be all they are. The father of all modern educational movements. I'll inter interject right here. Uh, Miles Setun was a devoted student of Rousseau and considered Rousseau to have the uh, vision and theory of education to pull off his, rev his revolution. Amen. Amen. Rousseau said that the state is the highest known form of association and is a fully, this is the words of Rousseau, and is a fully developed moral and collective being. These people had the vision. Amen. But they thought it was great. Amen. A moral and collective being with a common will, which is the highest, which in the highest sense yet known to us is general. And by that he means common to all. The majority will, the general will, is always right. But only when the nation is purged, this is Rousseau, only when the nation is purged of any partial society within the state. Amen. Amen. This is what kids are being educated in all over the world. It's masked. It's, it's, it's never put this bluntly, but that is the case. Can a bad tree bear good fruit? Amen. For Rousseau, quote, education is crucial for it is education that must give souls their national form and so direct their opinions and their tastes so that they will be patriots by inclination, by passion, by necessity. We've got to make it likable, seductive, and entrancing. Amen. Amen. And now, 91% of Americans send their kids into this guy's school. Amen. Amen. To form citizens is not the work of a day, and in order to have men, it is necessary to educate them when they are children. Rousseau declared that government must not abandon, quote, to the intelligence and prejudices of fathers the education of their children, as that education is of still greater importance to the state than to fathers. Families dissolve, but the state remains. Amen. I mean, this is, this is right in the face of what we've heard so far here today. Education, Rousseau declared, is certainly the most important business of the state. Public education, and this is his words, he's basically inventing this concept right here, public education, or maybe I should say reinventing it 
because it was in Pergamum, amen. Public education under regulations prescribed by the government and under magistrates established by the sovereign is one of the fundamental rules of popular and legitimate government. Nothing is more contrary to the social spirit than Christianity. Christianity as a religion is entirely spiritual. The country of the Christians is not of this world. And he wants to establish the state. Whoever dares to say, as Evan quoted, outside the church is no salvation, ought to be driven from the state unless the state is the church and the prince its pontiff. He revived the ancient Roman saying, vox populi, vox dii, the voice of the people is the voice of God. Everybody still with me? Is that too many? Amen. I just want to convince you. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In Germany at this time, there was an enlightenment king. His name was Frederick the Great. And he, Prussia at that time, historians say, was the first modern nation to attach great importance to universal schooling. Who was this guy, Frederick? Well, listen to what he has to say about Christian communion. You will certainly grant me that neither antiquity nor whatever nation has devised a more repulsive and blasphemous absurdity than that of eating your God. This is the climax of madness and insanity. Amen. He described Christianity as, quote, an old metaphysical fiction stuffed with fables, contradictions, and absurdities. It was spawned in the fevered imagination of the Orientals, he meant the Jews, and then spread to our Aryan Europe, where some fanatics espoused it, where some intriguers pretended to be convinced by it, and where some imbeciles actually believed it. I don't think he liked it. <laughs> In 1763, it was this same Frederick the Great who was a patron of Voltaire and a protector and collaborator with Rousseau who promulgated, quote, the principle of compulsory school attendance. See, he's the king, he's the beast. And Voltaire, this guy Voltaire and Rousseau fed him with certain ideas and he set up a system there in Germany, amen? The French Revolution, inflamed by the words of these false prophets, in, 19, in 1792, dug up the bodies of Voltaire and Rousseau, who had died 14 years before, dug the bodies up, brought them to Paris, grabbed a church that the Catholics had built and desecrated it and turned it instead into what they called the Pantheon, which means temple to all gods. The thing is, all they would have buried there were great men. And so they put Rousseau and Voltaire in there, amen, in the pantheon, 
in the temple to all gods, the temple to great men, and, and then they went on a frenzy. Our Lord mankind was released. They then, in the reign of terror, arrested 300,000 people, executed 17,000 people. They went on a mad rampage, our Lord mankind. Most of them, a lot of them anyway, by guillotine, amen. They, they, they had 10,000 more die in prison without any trial. It was a bloodbath. I believe somebody mentioned earlier that it was quoted that the streets of Paris ran with blood. Amen. Amen. It may look like a lamb, but I'll tell you in the end, it's a devouring dragon. Amen. Pestalozzi came along and, and uh, uh, he implemented Rousseau's uh, view. He actually Produced Everything's sort of theoretical so far. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And then Pestalozzi came along and actually implemented a school. He, based on, on, on Rousseau's theories, he managed to find the French Revolution Army came in in the late 1700s and wiped out an entire area in Switzerland called Stans and left, I think it's... Uh, uh, what is it, 169 orphans and 237 other children who were left totally destitute. He says, this is an opportunity. He goes in and they expropriate a Catholic convent and turn it into the first school that we're used to right now. So the first actual tangible expression of what we call public schools right now was started in a desecrated church and its students were the orphans of massacred Christians. Amen. Amen. Hegel, he was a profound influence on modern education. This is a quote from, he comes in the really around 1800 up to about 1830. Amen. Is this just overwhelming here? You're with? Okay. All right. Hegel, we must hence honor the state as the divine upon the earth. Now, I'll tell you, you read these things and you say, man, these guys were nuts. I mean, the thing is, we don't realize that upon this, the whole notion of compulsory education. Most modern universities are all built on this. And out of the universities come the journalists. Amen. All the informing institutions of the modern world, this is where it comes from. Amen. 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 Hegel said, we must hence honor the state as the divine upon the earth. Frederick Engels, who was Karl Marx's collaborator, described his own view as Hegel's principle that humanity and divinity are in essence identical. Amen. Hegel was a devotee of Rousseau from his youth. 
The state, to quote Hegel, is the march of God in the world. Setting himself up as God. Amen. Praising the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, Hegel proclaimed, never since, listen to this, never since the sun had stood in the firmament and planets revolved around it, had it been perceived that man's existence centers in his head. One of the world's most influential philosophers. Amen. And the basis of much of modern education. A revelation come never before. All of a sudden we see it all centers in our head. That is in thought. Inspired by which, this thought, he builds up the world of reality. All of a sudden, man is the creator of reality because something is deceiving him, amen, into thinking that he's God, amen. Only with the French Revolution had man advanced to the recognition that thought ought to govern the spiritual reality. This revolution was accordingly a glorious mental dawn, all thinking being shared in the jubilation of this epoch. Amen. A revelation came to the world. Amen. Amen. Hegel was particularly scornful of those, quote, who seek guidance from the Lord, who seek to follow, quote, the witness of their own spirit and heart. Quote, the only possible fruits of their attitude are folly, abomination, and the demolition of the whole ethical order. Hegel, the rights of the children are rights which the state has made its own. The rights, we're, we're here to protect the rights of the kids. You know, I mean, the state's got to step in and protect all these kids from horrible parents. You know, a lamb, amen. The rights of the children are rights which the state has made its own and has protected in consequence. And this has given the state the right to train the children in its moral maxims and to suit its own ends. Amen. Amen. In contrast to the state, if the church has achieved so much by its educational methods that it has either wholly subdued reason and intellect in religious speculation or else so filled the imagination with terrors that reason and intellect cannot and dare not venture on consciousness and of freedom. The guy needs to go to Sister Amanda's writing shop because it's pretty turgid, you know. But what he's saying is if the church has, has, has through religious, you know, now you just trust in God for all your, you don't really think it through. You're not logical. Or the church has even put terror into you. That's called the fear of God. Amen. Then he says, the church has infringed on the child's natural right 
to the free development of his faculties and brought him up as a slave instead of a free, season, a free citizen. Amen. This is what Brother Thompson ran into in that court. Amen. 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 We need to free the child from this stultifying influence. Amen. Amen. From Germany came the model of the universities of the world. From John Hopkins, the University of Chicago, and the transformed Harvard that used to be a, a, a church school. Amen. In the United States, to the other end of the world, and the University of Peking in Beijing. All are founded explicitly on the German model. You can see it in all, all their stuff. Amen. The much treasured and esteemed concept of academic freedom, what do you think it actually meant? Do you know what it actually meant? It meant we're now free from religion imposing anything on us. It didn't mean free thought. <laughs> In, in, in the sense that they want to make it believe. It means liberating knowledge from the pressures of the, that evil church that puts terrors in people's minds and causing you to worship something outside yourself. Amen. If we shift our example to the U.S., we see William Ellery Channing, amen, who reje in reaction to Calvinism rejected original sin and claimed reason as the source of all knowledge, he held to the belief, quote, that man and God are essentially similar. In his view, man is essentially like God. His nature, too, is divine. It is the lawgiver in our own breasts which gives us the idea of divine authority. The soul is clothed with sovereignty over itself. Man like God is good that he can comprehend divinity with reason. Amen. The teacher would become a sort, this is a quote from Channing, a sort of secular ministry to the souls of children. He equated teaching with pastoral duties. He said, we know not how society can be aided more than by the formation of a body of wise and efficient educators. We know not any class which could contribute so much to the stability of the state. Amen. This class of state educators are destined to work a fundamental revolution in society. Amen. Horace Mann was a best friend. Amen. How much time? Amen. He was the best, Horace Mann was the best friend of, of William Ellery Channing, and he instituted the first compulsory school in the United States. Amen. After he went to Germany and visited Germany and got all his ideas. Amen. Amen. Then came Lester Ward, one of the primary leaders in the transformation of the school in the United States. He became the first president of the American Sociological Society. He believed that evolution should no longer just continue on, but that now man, because of his intellect, can guide evolution. He coined the word telesis, which meant guided progress. I think sometimes we would call it uh, engineering now. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we're, we're going to 
human engineering, engineering society, amen. He followed the founder of sociology, August Kant. August Kant's vision for planned progress, or telesis, grew out of his sociological science of man. He was the founder, and I wish I could tell you his story. It's incredible. This guy was a pure D nut. <laughs> the founder of sociology. He, he would worship at a chair from his, at his deceased. He drove this woman so crazy that she died. And, 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 and he cut off a lock of her hair and he had a velvet chair and he, he, he started what he called the religion of humanity and he would kneel at this chair and worship Clotilde DeVoe, his long lost love. He's the guy who founded sociology, amen. His vision for planned progress grew out of his sociological science of man. Kant wrote that the whole effect of my philosophy will be to make man feel clearly how far superior in every respect is the synthesis founded on the love of humanity to that founded on the love of God. No important step in the progress of humanity can now be made without totally abandoning the theological principle. Amen. Kant wrote, the object of our philosophy is to direct the spiritual reorganization. This is what it's all about, he says, is to direct the spiritual reorganization of the civilized world. We may begin at once to construct the system of morality under which the final regeneration of humanity will proceed. Amen. In Ward's view, private parent-controlled education was, quote, absolutely worse than no education at all because it set up a parallel society. Amen. It didn't allow the state to come together fully. Amen. 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 The secret of the superiority of the state over private, this is Ward, the secret of the superiority of the state over private education lies in the fact that the former teacher, the state teacher, is responsible solely to society, that is the state. The result desired by the state is wholly different than that desired by parents, guardians, or pupils. Of the latter, that is parents, the public school teacher is happily independent. This is one of the Absolutely, we're now up to about 1900. And this guy, it was very, very influential. And the public school teacher is happily independent of parents. This independence renders him practically free, amen. William Torrey Harris was the evangelist for Hegel's philosophy in the United States. He was the first, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth commissioner of education in the United States. Amen. He edited what became the most influential philosophical journey journal of the latter half of the 1800s. One historian writes that by the end of the 19th century, Hegelian philosophy, the state is the march of God in the world, 
Hegelian philosophy was in full control of the departments of philosophy in the leading universities, largely as a result of the untiring advocacy of William T. Harris and the St. Louis School. Harris was extraordinarily influential at a time when university education was becoming of age. He became the fourth United States Commissioner of Education. He shaped the thinking of a whole generation of American educators. Amen. He read Hegel's philosophy of history 17 times. This is not a small book. Amen. He was quoted more frequently and with more approval by educational journals and by public school teachers than any other American. And he was a thoroughgoing Hegelian. Amen? Amen. He addressed the newly formed National Education Association and said, the state has a higher function to perform. The lamb is going to be appearing here. The state has a higher function to perform. It is clear that the final end of all government must be to elevate the individual to the highest participation in his own universal being. That's the state. And to enable him practically and theoretically to know himself, not the Lord, himself. The state even in its most despotic form, remains still the realization of man's reflected being, and to it he owes, all, he owes all that is distinctively human. Amen. Amen. I'm going to skip some of this. Amen. We go to John Dewey, amen, who said that Harris was the defining influence on his life, and he also says that if, I, if it were possible for me to be a devotee, John Dewey, who is also called, he is the most important educator of the 20th century. Nobody disagrees with that. Amen. If it were possible for me to be a devotee of any system, I still should believe that there is greater richness and greater variety in the insight of Hegel than in any other single systematic philosopher. Dewey was the culminating theorist of three centuries of educational writing and is considered the most influential of the 20th century philosophers of education. In Dewey's view, dependence on any external power, and he doesn't mean dependence on the state, he means dependence on God, is the counterpart of surrender of the human effort. Dewey stated, every man is an absolute end in himself. I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital moral and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without the surrender of the conception of the basic division to which supernatural Christianity is committed. What is that division? There's a kingdom that is not of this world, and there's a kingdom that's in this world. He says, we got to do away with that. Amen. There's only going to be one kingdom. It's going to be in this world. Amen. He saw, he saw faith and intelligence as religion. Amen. Amen. Stanford's Richard Rorty, probably the most 
influential general philosopher of the late 20th century eagerly agrees with Dewey. That Americans would break the traditional link between the religious impulse, the impulse to stand in awe of something greater than oneself. Amen. We cannot be in awe of something greater than oneself. We've got to break this. What is the man of sin? Exalting himself above everything that called God or that is worshiped. Amen. Amen. We've got to break that impulse and the infantile need for security. Dewey wanted that utopian America to replace God. This is Richard Rorty describing Dewey as the unconditional object of desire. The ultimate goal was that each American would learn to substitute his own nation state for the kingdom of God. Amen. The false prophet causes people to worship the beast. Amen. I'll read one more thing right here. This guy, he's a co-worker with Harris. And listen to this. Um, remember, Harris was, he, he, he was the big, big guy in the 1800s. He addressed a convention, and the title of his address was the Universal Educative Institution. And this is all going to be a direct quote from Denton Snyder. Who is the teacher? Ultimately, the world spirit, the absolute ego, who is at the center of civilization and is unfolding it into a colossal image of himself. While there are many other teachers, the world spirit is the chief pedagogue in the world school. Moreover, he has been at work from the beginning. Secretly, he had a hand in the public school and organized it for his own behoof, training the youth of the land for his purpose. This world spirit was also at work in the university, preparing its inmates specially for the task of his school, which is verily the sum of all schools, and in which he is finally to reveal himself, the revealing of the man of sin. Amen? Amen. Through all this, we seek to catch some outline some suggestion of that school over all schools and its supreme schoolmaster. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read three more scriptures and then I better, I've got a lot more here. I'd like to talk about the way media and visual images changes our brains. Amen. And makes the image of the beast come alive. Amen. Amen. And how consumer society, which was, is, the, is the child of, of all of this stuff. Amen. Amen. It, it, has, it has come to the forefront, uh, uh, driven by people who, who uh, uh, absolutely knew what they were doing, and they wanted to change the economy 
from a needs-based economy and family economy to a wants-based economy and, and why in the garden the very first step was Satan had, the serpent had to get Eve to desire, to covet the place of God. Amen. And consumer society, what it's doing, it breeds covetousness inside of people. And the whole media is involved in it, and it does something to our brains. But we're going to have to wait till next year to go over that. Okay? <laughs> Amen. Amen. But uh, I want to read three scriptures. Exodus 13, 7 and six through 16. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. This is the Passover. And no unleavened bread shall be seen amongst you. And you shall tell your son. This is talking about education like we've been talking. You shall tell your son in that day saying, this is done of what Yahweh did for me when I came up out of Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. Something to always bring it back to mind. He's talking about a system of education here. Amen. Amen. That the Lord's law may be in your mouth. So it shall be when your son asks you in a time to come saying, What is this that you will say to him? By the strength of hand of Yahweh, he brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, I will sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign. This telling your children these things over and over again. It shall be a sign on your hand and his frontlets between your eyes. For by strength of the hand of Yahweh, he brought us out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, which we quoted earlier today. The great commandment. And then he says, you shall teach your children diligently. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. When you, you will bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It's a education is going to mark the hand and the forehead. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy 11, 18 and 19. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your... Every time he talks about transferring this to your children diligently, he brings up this same phraseology. And you shall, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Amen. Amen. And as we can see, the counterpart of being marked with the mark of the beast is being involved in that system. Amen. 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 We want our kids to be marked with the mark of God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 I wish I could go on, but I... What's that? Hey, maybe do that. Okay. Because it's... Amen. Folks, it's deceiving believers all over the world right now. Amen. It's marking their foreheads. We don't have to worry about a chip coming. 
We're going to already be brainwashed before we ever take a chip, if such a chip ever takes place. Amen. Amen. But God is showing us the way out. Amen. 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 He's giving us a strong and mighty tower. Amen. The name of the Lord. Amen. And it's important. See, I've told you beforehand, Jesus said, so be aware. It's all around us. Amen. And we've got to make an exodus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.